Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who got rich off of homemade moonshine, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? I am doing well. Here to discuss movies with you. One of my favorite things in the world. And we have got a hell of a film here today by uh, an up-and-coming young whippersnapper by the name of uh, Chris Nolan that you all should be looking out here for. Uh, yeah, I, keep I an eye out for that guy. For He's that going guy. places. <laughs> <laughs> and we are looking at his film Dunkirk. Do you have a description for us, buddy? I do. Google has this described as, in May 1940, Germany advanced into France, trapping Allied troops on the beaches of Dunkirk. Under air and ground cover from British and French forces, Troops were slowly and methodically evacuated from the beach using every serviceable naval and civilian vessel that could be found. At the end of this heroic mission, 330,000 French, British, Belgian, and Dutch soldiers were safely evacuated. Uh, like you said, this is directed by a little upstart named Chris Nolan. Uh, this made $527 million against a budget of about 100 wow. mil. It was nominated for a boatload of awards, won a few. And uh, deserved every one of them, as far as I'm concerned. This was Absolutely. a very, very unique uh, movie experience. This is one of my favorites, uh, especially in the war uh, genre. Uh, I had not seen this in quite some time. Um, and for some reason, I had it in my head that this was more of a slow burn than it was uh, the fever pitch and, and intense film that it was. You know, some of yeah. those, uh, so, some films have like a... Uh, epilepsy warning, uh, like a trigger warning, like enter the void or whatever. Uh, yeah, this should uh -huh. have like a high blood pressure warning. I kept thinking that. Like <laughs> this movie has it's me very stressed. tense. It's very yeah. suspenseful. Absolutely. In that you respect, know that how actually it actually doesn't matter. Yeah, it reminded me of Captain Phillips in that respect, where it was just like the slow burn intensity of like war and hostage situations and these very real situations that occur in international warfare, you know. Right. But yeah, instead of being the hyper violent Saving Private Ryan kind of film, no, it's more of the like slow burn, almost kind of like a thrillerish sort of thing, you know. So, right. Yeah, I, uh, I have to say I, I quite dug it as well. And before we really get into it, I do want to go ahead and tell our audience to go ahead and like and subscribe to this video and our channel. And also, if you have an opinion on this film or our review of it, whether you agree or disagree, please go ahead and leave that in the comments section below. We would legitimately love to hear from you. Now, so Ryan, yeah, I'm with you, man. I loved this film way more than I thought I would actually, for whatever Same. reason, I had kind of got it into my head, uh, similar to you, that it wasn't really like a considered a strong film. And it was actually, I realized it was the only Chris Nolan film outside of Oppenheimer currently that I haven't seen before. So oh, it really? was the lone, yeah, it was the lone spot. It would have been following, but we actually looked at that episode in season two or three. I think it was three actually on the audio podcast. So having seen following, I only had Dunkirk to check off the box and 
it was odd because I first thing that really took me by surprise because we all know that like Nolan is a long-winded bastard when it comes to his movies, right? Like he's not yeah. he's not there to get out anytime soon. And this movie is an hour and 47 minutes, including credits, right. which is really remarkable for a Chris Nolan film. I thought that might mean that there wasn't really a lot of meat on the bone and it was just kind of like, a, okay, let's get in and out. And that was not the case at all. It was exactly as long as it needed to be. It could have been longer, but I don't think that it would have gotten any more information. Like, I don't think it would have learned anything. It wasn't necessary, you know? So right. I appreciated the fact that he was willing to be economical when the story and the film called for it because we don't always see that from him, you know? Right. And and you don't always get the chance to see uh, such micro war films where you're narrowed yeah, down to definitely. just one small thing. You know, you're never cutting back to, you know, war generals in a room with maps and, you know, what's FDR doing or where's Truman at or whatever, you know, uh, Stalin and Hitler and, you know, all the nuances of the politics of war. Um, this, yeah. you know, trimmed all of that down to just, uh, it was, it was more of a tale of survival and humanity than it was, a war movie. You know, these were people that were sure. in a very specific situation that just so happened to be during war. Um, and also telling the story because it's Chris Nolan. So of course, but out of order and three different parts, you know, you're covering land, sea and air. Uh, and if all that wasn't enough for your captain planet bingo card, they threw in some fire on the water as well. <laughs> so yeah, it was just, um, there was a lot going on, but yeah, kudos mm-hmm. to the brevity for, for under two hours to tell such a complex story from multiple angles uh, covering so many different people's uh, point of view. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you know, it's it's a technically astounding film. I mean, oh, dude. first of all, all of his films are that way, right? Like, say right. what you will about Nolan and his storytelling, just from the mood that he evokes to the effects that are always very seamlessly done, and the sound design, the cinematography, right? Everything about his film technically is a masterclass in cinema, and you really can't take that away from anything. Like I said, maybe you don't necessarily appreciate the stories he tells. I know you famously didn't like Tenet, um, so, you know, it's not like it works all the time for everyone. But, yeah, it, even even in a film like that, I think you could argue, like, technically it's probably a masterpiece uh, sure. now that they've fixed the sound. <laughs> which I, I still I haven't don't know seen why it. he does that. Like, why I haven't he... seen it since they fixed the sound. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he's so insistent. Like, remember the whole story about... When Dark Knight Rises came out and nobody could understand Bane and right. he was just like, well, doesn't matter because, you know, that's how someone would sound wearing a mask. Yeah. And it's like, OK, but like this is a movie. And if I don't understand the character and the the bad guy's motivations, <laughs> it's going to take away from my experience. Right. So, like, let's split that gap. Right. And he did. And it worked. Do you I don't think anyone was sitting there like. Do you feel the control of your podcast, Jason? <laughs> no, Ryan, I'd like to talk to you about the acting. What's up, Jason? How's it going, boy? What do you think about this yeah. movie? <laughs> yeah, so, um, but, you know, outside, but, like, this film obviously doesn't even allow for him to do that, right? Like, these are all just, so, this is... World War Two. there's no masks, there's no anything like that. It's not like he's got knights under some helmet or anything like that. <laughs> and right. so, you know, no opportunities for that. But it's not to say that he doesn't necessarily make some interesting decisions with regards to sound design. So yeah. one of the aspects that I noticed about this film is, first of all, it's his longtime collaborator doing the score of Hans Zimmer, right? Hans we sort Zimmer. of mentioned that, like, 
Chris Nolan has reduced Hans Zimmer to like a sound designer, right? Yeah. Like this is a guy that has like been doing melody for decades. And, you know, here comes Chris Nolan like, oh, I just want you to do like a really low droning tone. And yeah. then Hans is like, do I get paid the same? And he's like, absolutely. Oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> yeah, sure. You got it, buddy. Uh, I, so, I call this Hans Zimmer's ticking clock uh, era where every single <laughs> score he's done has some kind of ticking clock involved. Um, <laughs> Dark Knight opens with it. This has it. Uh, you know, yeah. you can go back and look at all these different. I think uh, Interstellar has it as well. It's this constant tick, 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 tick. You know, in some fashion, there's yeah. a, a ticking clock that's uh, going on in the background to kind of help build the intensity. Yeah. But, you know, it's really funny because like, some of the sounds and the, and I guess you can't call them melodies, but at least the compositions that he's creating, let's say, they they have this interesting interplay with the action on screen in this film, you know? So there's like a part where, you know, you do get the kind of ticking and it kind of starts off like this, uh, yeah, just sort of like repetitive drone. And then it like gets faster and faster and faster until it sort of, until it sort of like turns into like the roar of a jet engine that we then see like come into frame and sort of like takes over. And so it was this really interesting use of sort of seamlessly transitioning from one scene to the next, like going yeah. from ground to air and then right. using that soundtrack and those sounds and taking them from being score based and then almost having them become diegetic, you know, over the course right. of like 10 or 12 seconds, which is really cool you know, to see them do that. And yeah. that's not necessarily, I think that's more Nolan than Zimmer at the end of the day, right? Like the, the direction to do that. And that's, I think his ideations and whatnot, but Zimmer still delivering exactly what Nolan needs to get the exact experience for his audience. And so you've got to give respect to that. And I think also just as well is the way that the two of them use silence to such an exceptional degree, which is probably a large part of what makes this a different war film than sure. other films. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And did you read uh, at all or see at all what um, what they did to the score to build the intensity? So the first thing my takeaway, no. my, my first takeaway with this was that it, it in many cases seemed like one big, long, swelling song or score that was interrupted sure. by moments of silence to reset. And mm -hmm. it always seemed to be ascending or escalating. And it's this magic trick that I guess has been around for a while, but Hans Zimmer and Nolan have teamed up to really perfect this. And it's on a lot of their films and it's called the shepherd tone. Are you familiar with this? No, no, please proceed. This is great. So basically you take, um, take a note in three octaves. And if you, um, the, the high octave is building all three are ascending in tone and your high, high note uh, as it starts to get to a fever pitch, starts to fade away and your mid-tone starts to become the high tone and your low tone then becomes the mid-tone and, and then slowly hmm. a, lo a new low tone starts to blend in. And it creates yeah. this never-ending loop of um, what to your ear sounds like the music is constantly like building and ascending um, yeah. to... Uh, it's they. I, I saw on uh, Vox they described it as a barbershop pole of sound. So when you watch a barbershop <laughs> pole, you're watching those red and blue lines constantly look like they're going up and, and disappearing, but it's just the same few lines like starting over again, right? And this is that yeah. audibly, which is bananas. I guess they started <laughs> using this um, back in uh, like the Dark Knight. They were even using it for uh, the sounds of the motorcycle, the bat cycle or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it sounded mm. like the motorcycle was like constantly like uh, revving up and going faster and faster, but it's just these three notes 
that are, you know, used in unison. Um, I guess even in Super Mario World, uh, there's uh, some parts where Mario <laughs> goes up the stairs and they use this uh, shepherd tone to make it sound like you're consistently just going up the stairs forever. So, uh, yeah, this is, I guess, an old uh, an old sound trick that they kind of pulled out and brushed the dust off. And, uh, and that's why... Um, you know, there are times that it sounds just like a swelling roar of sound, but it's sure. like escalating and building your intensity and, and your blood pressure. Like I said earlier, it's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And then especially with his use of silence in the relative space of the sound design, you know, it really adds to this tremendous sense of fear and apprehension. Right. So specifically thinking about the soldiers when they're trapped on the beach, which is the majority of the film, of course, but specifically with regard to the fact that like every time a plane is heard overhead, it's like the most terrifying, like yeah. instantly your stomach gets tight and you're like, Oh shit. Because like these guys are sitting ducks relative to right. any sort of airstrike, you know, and we see them, the enemy performing successful airstrikes early on, which helps to establish that as a theme that we, as the audience are then going to be, uh, conditioned to fear and again the silence of just everything going quiet except for the sound of those those rotors and those motors in the air right. getting closer and closer it's so spectacularly done and as well i think it probably lends itself to that experience right like if you think about what ha what those soldiers were going through during that moment like nobody's chatting Nobody's talking, right? It's not like the Saving Private Ryan slow moments of like, oh, let's discuss what each other's doing back home. It's just like, hey, it's just like silent exchanges of like, hope we don't die, bro. Yep, right. me too, bro. Right? Like it's, and and the film does a great job of expressing that. And I also feel like the film tried to do this with its casting, right? Like outside of perhaps maybe Cillian Murphy, who is, you know, very recognizable with his, his doe eyes. Right. And, and then maybe Tom Hardy, because everybody knows who Tom Hardy is at this point. I thought it was interesting that everybody ultimately kind of looks very similar, you know? And so I think with the casting, it lends itself to that. Like when you're on the battlefield, you know, you can't easily identify your friend from your partner, from your commander. Right. It's just like a bunch of bodies and everybody, again, sort of looks the same from a distance. And so I thought that the casting, again, did a really good job of reinforcing that and allowing us to experience that. Yeah, he went with a bunch of young unknowns um, to, to really drive your point home. Um, aside from, like you said, the uh, the Kenneth Branaghs and uh, was it Mark Rylance um, is the old man on the boat. Uh, there are a few uh, recognizable faces along the way in the older cast, but the young boys that are on that beach could be yeah. anybody. And um, Harry Styles was in there. I guess if you are familiar with his work, he's, you know, a young whippersnapper. But other than that, I, I didn't recognize him. I know who he is, too. And I didn't recognize yeah. him, which I think kind of lends itself to my point. Because I saw then, that after uh, the fact. Was it Barry, uh, Barry Keoghan, uh, however yeah, you say Yeah, Barry his Keegan, name? I think you say. Yeah, Keegan. Um, dude, he's awesome. And uh, yeah, he's great in everything. He's, he's <laughs> not in this much. But man, don't I mean, what little bit he is, you know, you have a lot of pathos for his character. I thought it was also an interesting choice to kind of take your point uh, one step further too, um, to not he never shows you the enemy like you never see yeah. the Germans um, or or whatever, you know, coming in. You never not see them humans, on the other side the of the wall. They're just this faceless yeah. enemy. Um, you see the plane, the enemy planes a little bit, but you never see their pilots. Um, you know, it's not about good versus evil. Like I was saying earlier, this is a story of survival. That 
is just a, as much of an imposing threat as a natural disaster or anything else. Um, and he kind of treated it that way. And then the heroism of the common man uh, as they come over to rescue uh, their soldiers uh, from that foreign coast. So um, I th apparently that that boat ride over to France from England is much more treacherous and those seas can be a lot less calm than it was portrayed on mm. camera. But um, other than that, man, yeah, that was that was intense. And then, you know, there's these moments where you see Rylance's boat, you know, going to towards Dunkirk from England to go pick up these go pick up their boys and um, and they're, they're passing by battleships and just that juxtaposition of, you know, these war, these, these machines designed for war are heading one way. And then, you know, these innocent common people are, are going the other way, you know, towards danger. I thought, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion, I think that, uh, that was driven home in this film. Let's talk a little bit about the yeah. cinematography by Hoyt Van Hoyt Temma. Um, did you look up a lot about that or, or see some of the methods that they, they shot this on, namely that they shot this on film and IMAX and, and all the things they had to do for that? No, what you got? Well, just that they shot it, uh, you know, completely practical. Um, and those IMAX cameras are crazy big, very loud. And Hoyt Damn. Van Hotema is a beast. And he you know, was course, doing a lot yeah. of handheld. Um, he was putting these things on planks of wood to run down the beach with them. Um, even so much as uh, they were finding ways to mount these things on the uh, on the, the planes when they were doing the dogfight scenes. They wanted mm -hmm. to shoot these uh, pretty practically. And so uh, I guess they found uh, these other uh, planes called Yaks that have two cockpits or a double cockpit. So the pilot was able to fly from the back and then they were able to mount this uh, IMAX camera to film, um, uh, you know, Tom Hardy and, and the like up front. Uh, was it J yeah. Jack John Loudon or Jack Loudon or whatever the other uh, the other pilot? But um, yeah, that way they could film all that on an IMAX camera and do all these dogfight maneuvers um, while a pilot in the back uh, was actually you know manipulating the plane. But uh, so much of this was shot practically um, right up to the point where. Um, to Nolan's credit, as much as he gets a lot of shit for his uh, dialogue and, and muted uh, sound styles, um, for this one, he actually deferred to Panavision 65 millimeter because those cameras are much less loud. So for the dialogue mm. scenes with Branagh on the um, on the pier and the dock and stuff like that, the mole, they call it, um, you know, they were able to get a boom pole in there and actually film the dialogue practically on set. So they didn't have to ADR everything later. They actually switched cameras for the dialogue stuff. But otherwise... Pretty much all IMAX, which, you know, like I said, are very, very large cameras, very noisy cameras. And they were in really shitty conditions. It was very stormy on that beach. Um, they would often be shooting in the rain uh, or during, you know, tide changes and stuff like that. So, um, you know, the, the production, if you have time, go back and, and, and get on YouTube. If you're watching this show, you're already on YouTube, chances are. So just click over and watch some uh, making of behind the scenes featurettes on Dunkirk. It's it'll really make you have a lot of respect for what they went through to make this film. It was crazy. Definitely. Yeah. And I also just really love the fact that it called attention to the fact that the civilians played this role in rescuing these people. You know, that sure. was not anything that I was ever familiar with. I think a lot of people can say the same. So also very cool to see that Nolan is sort of bringing attention to, uh, at the time overlooked group of people that serviced right. a really, uh, important part in, you know, rescuing all of those. I think they said that they were able to get right, like over 300,000 people. 330,000. Yeah. I think yeah, out of 400, they uh, were able to save 330,000 of them and get them off that beach. And most, all of it was because of 
the bravery of, of civilians taking their boats across the, the pond and going to get their boys back. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's pretty much like an 80% success rate or something like that. So good on them. You know, that's really cool. Better now, than military I, I, can do. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> now, what is your opinion of, of Nolan as a director overall? Where do you think he that, ranks in the Pantheon? Like what, you know, right. the entire body of work, all that. So that guy is playing uh, chess while everybody else is playing checkers. And yeah, um, absolutely. It's just crazy. Like, you know, he's doing math. Like it's, He's not, I mean, obviously he's approaching it from an artistic standpoint. Playing 5D chess, man. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. So sometimes that, you know, succeeds. And sometimes I think that the story and entertainment value and emotion of the story that he's trying to tell um, gets a little lost and convoluted in him trying to do this high wire act of his storytelling. So um, Interstellar wasn't for me um probably deserves a rewatch but man did i try to like that movie and and did not uh okay. tenant was not for me either um but mm-hmm. this is great um the first two batman films were the most high art that we're probably going to get a comic book adaptation the third one fell Absolutely. a little short for me love memento following was so so we discussed it on this show so he's very hit and miss you would think for for such a uh, high quality auteur as him that I would just be right down the line and say, yeah, he's one of my favorites and blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's really good when he's at his best. He's one of the best, but there are some along the way that kind of fell short for me. How about you? Yeah. So I've never really considered him to be one of my favorite filmmakers. And this film kind of forced me to do a little bit of a gut check and reassess that because as I started just walking down the list, it's like the guy's never made a bad movie first and no. foremost. I think the only film, I think the film I enjoyed the least of his was Following, and okay. that's still like a three-star film, right? Sure. And it's his first film that he made for no money, right? For $7,000 right. or whatever stupid budget it was, right? So, but I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen The Prestige, so I don't remember that one. But everything else of his, I really, really enjoyed. I actually really enjoyed Interstellar. I loved Inception. I loved Tenant. I love yeah. Memento. Like he's a really strong. And now I love Dunkirk, you know? Right. So I can't really think of anything he's done. Like I said, that I disliked actively or even just found okay outside of his basically opening student film, you know? So I think it's easy because, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, it's one of those frustrating things. It's like when somebody asks you like your favorite, whatever, and it's like, you know, you have a basic bitch answer, but it's also just kind of like the objective truth, right? It's like when people ask me, like, what's your favorite Pink Floyd album, right? Uh, I'm a huge Pink Floyd uh, fan. And so, you know, you want to say something super obscure to show off that, like, you know, the early stuff, you know? So people like to be cute and go like, oh, I like Umma Gumma or I like Final Cut or like all of this stuff. And it's like the correct answer is Dark Side of the Moon. Right. It's a perfect album. There's nothing wrong. There's yeah. not a single off moment in the entire <laughs> thing and it sold bazillions of copies everybody's heard of it everybody knows it your dad likes it like it's not cool to say dark side of the moon is like pink floyd's best album but it's damn accurate it just is and that's how i feel about chris nolan right now like you're gonna ask me you know who are my favorite filmmakers and it's like oh i want to drop off like cosmos panatos you know from uh mandy or whatever right like all these cool guys michelangelo antonioni makes me sound super cultured right like but like i'll be goddamned if chris nolan isn't one of our best hollywood directors out here right sure. now man he's yeah and, and in many respects he's kind of he's like 
a more commercial version of Kubrick. It's like Kubrick found out right. how to make money because I do understand the criticism that his movies can be kind of cold and cerebral and emotionless. And I won't disagree with you there, but as someone whose favorite filmmaker is Kubrick, like obviously that doesn't bother me, right? There's room for all of it. And I think because there's not that, that much of that style of filmmaking represented in modern Hollywood, in traditional Hollywood, in the mainstream, it's welcome. And I appreciate it. Sure. No, I mean, uh, I can't disagree. Uh, I think that when it comes to Nolan, you're really splitting hairs with me because, you know, I could say that there are some films I liked less than others or I didn't feel lived up to the hype. Um, But that doesn't mean that we've talked about this on this show quite a bit where, you know, there are times that you're kind of put into a corner um, to ask opinions about films. And it's like, you know, that's not my favorite film or I'm giving it three and a half stars or four stars. Uh, Everything everywhere all at once. Uh, You had an opinion about that similar opinion Mm -hmm. where uh, you really like that film. We were just talking about this the other day. Um, You know, that's a great film to you. You just didn't feel like it was quite in that upper echelon that everybody was putting it in uh, for films that year to to herald all the awards and stuff. And I kind of feel that way about some Nolan films where um, is uh, Interstellar a great movie? Sure. Um, Tenet, like you said earlier, is probably a technical masterpiece for what it is. Um, I just didn't feel like it reached me story-wise, narratively, um, as much as as other films do. I wasn't as invested or I didn't feel that the ending was the payoff that I wanted or whatever it is. I will say I don't think I've ever seen Insomnia and I deserve uh, to to Mm. rewatch Prestige. I have not seen Prestige in quite some time uh, since it first came out. So uh, I'd like to go back and and watch both of those, especially after seeing Dunkirk and how much I enjoyed this film. Absolutely great time. Um, I mean, as much of a great time as... World War II movies can be, I guess. <laughs> I don't mean to make light yeah. of their struggle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and you do bring up a good point, which is that I, I totally forgot about Insomnia. I remember thinking that was like a totally like three star film. So, again, it wasn't a bad film, but it was also like with that cast and, and everything, you kind of just I wanted it to be more than it was. I never went back and rewatched it. So perhaps with a fresh slate, you know, I could I could I could appreciate it a bit more. But yeah. And then, like you said, you know, Dark Knight, I always forget that like Dark Knight and uh, Batman Begins are just right. like these perfect films as well. It's like you say, yeah. you know, the the closest thing approaching art that any of the superhero films are going to get to. And right. the other thing I think that I that really I, I realized in watching Dunkirk and I think what makes Chris Nolan work for me and for so many people is is in you as well is Every movie he makes, regardless of the genre or the seeming genre, is ultimately a thriller. I think that's what makes everything work. Like when you watch Dark Knight, that's not a superhero action movie. That's a thriller that features superheroes. When you watch this movie, this is a thriller that takes place in a war setting. When you watch Tenet, it's a sci-fi thriller, right? Like so he's and I think, you know. Part of it is, as you mentioned, the score and the sound design that's very consistent through all of his films. I think that lends itself to that. Sure. But every film he makes ultimately is a thriller. And I just kind of realized that. How about Oppenheimer? Do you think Oppenheimer qualifies as that or would that be an exception? Oof. That's a good question. I am going to say it was a drama they maybe treated like a thriller. Um, yeah. And that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, 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 yeah, he, he takes whatever the film's genre is. And then makes it a thriller. Takes a war yeah. movie, makes it a thriller. Takes a superhero movie, makes it a thriller, right? Right. 
Yeah, that film, uh, Oppenheimer, was crazy, man, because like the first majority, the, the biggest chunk of that movie, Acts 1 and most of 2, I feel like we were just being rushed right on through to the point where wow. I felt like I was watching a three-hour trailer for what was inevitably a 12-hour movie. <laughs> like we're just we're moving right along we're just getting the hits like let's go along and then as we get into the closing of the film without giving too much away they do kind of resolve that and explain why and and uh, give you some resolution i thought oppenheimer was a really really good movie that everybody is saying is a masterpiece um i don't i would sure. not say oppenheimer is better than dunkirk personally i think uh okay. this is him firing on all cylinders as well as the entire crew um you know they built uh, again, uh, a lot of those sets they had just the convergence of shit show on set material that they had the recipe for disaster that, you know, th those shots because they're shooting everything practically like this on film, by the way, not digital. So you don't just get all these retakes. You're loading IMAX, you know, film mags onto the back of these bitches. So sure. when you're doing the boat scenes, for example, and you got the cameras on the boats you've got cameras up on the wings of the plane filming that angle as they're flying around and you need to get a shot of the plane coming overhead you know that dog fight that's happening as they go over uh rye lance's boat as they're heading towards the shore to go pick up their boys think of everything that ha and then you've got the oil spill with the fire and everybody in that and that stunt work you've got the sinking battleship you've got this dog fight because the remember the plane sunk that sunk their battleship, if you will. And so that, that, that's all being happening. You know, that's all happening all at once. And so just think of everything that has to go right for all those moving pieces sure. that you're yeah. filming simultaneously because you've got the boys in the water, the fire goes up, the, the ship is sinking. Um, and they're giving you dynamic angles of that to make you feel claustrophobic and all of that shit show that's going on and everybody jumping off the boat, the dog. It's just like, Man, if one thing, if that boat just catches a tide and starts to spin around the wrong way and they're like, hold on, reset, you know, back to one. It's like, fuck, man, you got these planes. In the, I mean, it's just, I, again, yeah. watch the behind the scenes featurette and your mind will explode. Like what these guys went through. It's like a James Cameron making Titanic level of pressure that and they're all doing it on in the in the actual sea they're not doing it on a sound stage with a green screen where they could sink the boat and then raise it back up and sink the boat it's like no no uh you know this is all happening in real time and any one of these elements for nature can uh, set it all back and what hoyt was saying is that uh typically the worse things were outside the more they all kind of wanted to go shoot in those environments because it just felt like more gritty and real. And then sure. you could see the misery on the, the soldiers faces and shit more. Um, you know, it just, it, but it, it was more immersive versus shooting on a sunny, beautiful day when the seas were calm, you know, calm seas mm -hmm. don't make a good sailor or whatever the saying is. So yeah. Uh, pff, fucking awesome movie, dude. A great experience. And yeah, see this on the biggest screen. You can the loudest speakers. You can, uh, one mm -hmm. of the last things I will add is that um, uh, this is the most teal movie I have seen in a long time. <laughs> this movie is teal as hell uh, in the same way that uh, I always forget how blue and orange Terminator 2 is. When you go watch that, the whole movie's yeah. blue. It's like, holy crap, that's a blue movie. <laughs> and this is a very teal movie. I think that was very posh back in 2017, the teal and orange phase that we all went through. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree, man. It's superbly paced. You know, feels like it's 35 minutes long, you know, well-crafted, yeah. loved every minute of it. So I'd go watch this again go, right now. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Going to go ahead and finish with three adjectives, but first do want to remind you, if you haven't yet, please go ahead and like and subscribe. As well, if you agree or disagree with any part of this episode, go ahead and drop that in the sections below. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Ryan, let's go ahead and hear your three adjectives that sum up your description with Dunkirk. Uh, these are going to be real quick and easy, pretty much speak for themselves. The first one is palpable um, because it is. Uh, the next one is micro versus macro. Uh, because uh, like I was saying earlier, it's a very unique war experience when you don't get involved, uh, involved in all the uh, you know, minutia of government and politics and everything that's going on around them. You don't even see the enemies in this. This is a micro version of war uh, that just shows if you were there in this moment, this is what happens and go. And last is masterpiece. Because I think on every level, this is a masterpiece. It's gotta be one of his best. Um, probably one of his most approachable too. I think when you get into films like Inception or Batman, um, you know, those are more genre films. And I think you're going to weed out some of your audience that way. I think this is something you can watch with your friends, your girlfriend, your parents, your grandparents, put it on on Thanksgiving, whatever you want. It's good for any occasion, as long as you don't mind a little war. Um, I think this is on every level a masterpiece. How about you, Jason? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's you know, you stole one of mine, which is why I hate going to you first all the time. I got to stop doing that. So Take that. Uh, <laughs> I agree. It was it was absolutely a masterpiece technically and otherwise. It was also quietly intense and it was also uniquely captivating. It was just a, it was an it was an interesting approach to the war genre. Not something that we've seen done time and time again, you know. De definitely doesn't have the overwrought emotionality of like Oliver Stone war films, right? Like Platoon and such. So sure. really dig the approach here. There was respect for the material, respect for the people, respect for the craft. Really great yeah. film. I'm going to switch uh, mine. Ready? I'm going to switch Masterpiece because I have another one and I scratched it out because I thought it was hard to explain. But it's Dad Takes Off Belt because I felt like... This had all the intensity of your dad taking off a belt to give you a good whooping when you're a kid. <laughs> he doesn't have to say a word. Nothing has to be spoken. You know what's about to come and you're like <laughs> shitting your britches. Uh, it's just, I think that goes along with your quietly intense uh, motif, but dad takes off belt. I will switch that for Master. <laughs> nice. Go ahead and give us your star rating, man. Out of five stars. What you got? Dude, five stars with a bullet. No pun intended. <laughs> Awesome. Absolutely. I'm going to go ahead and give this one four and three quarter out of five. Oh, uh, just the only sort of little it. quarter. Yeah, no, just the little quarter, just because I do feel like the just the 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 emotionality just could have been in there a little bit better. Right. Giving me okay. someone that I could have just followed along with a little bit more to be slightly more emotionally invested in what in what's going on. But like that is an absolute nitpick. This is, like I said, an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, Pro probably. I'm certainly one of the best films of the year. It holds up well. It's one of Chris Nolan's great films. I could easily see on a second viewing this, you know, giving it that solid five stars, um, you know, knowing what it is next time walking into it. So, sure. but yeah, uh, you know, uh, that's just, again, the, the most nitpicky of quarter star slivers that I'm going to take off for that. Ladies brilliant, and gentlemen, Jason film, Peters has gone on record as saying he hates Dunkirk. I'm just putting this down. <laughs> <laughs> Says this is trash. You didn't give quarters. it five stars, you yeah. bastard. Oh, the worst. Real quick question before we button this up um yeah the the boy um that you start the film out with in the streets um that jumps over mm -hmm. the fence and survives the other few that he's with um i believe do you follow that kid that's the kid that's underneath the mole that pulls up harry styles that's the kid that 
uh, is clinging on to the boat that's being dragged through the oil when that light's on fire. We follow him throughout, right? Uh, To your point earlier, they all kind of start to look the same, especially when you get um, oil and and blood and stuff like that on their faces. Um, I started to lose track. It was like the ball under the coconut shell. Uh, But I believe that you start and end the film with him. I think he is one of the last people you see aside from Tom Hardy uh, being taken hostage. Is that, would you say that's correct? I would say specifically because I don't remember. So I'm going to go ahead and go with what you said because I don't have anything better. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious. It was an honest question. I'm not stating that that's a fact. Um, Yeah. It was. Hey, anybody anybody watching, go ahead and drop it in the comments. Let us know if Ryan's correct or not. And if not, give him a bunch of shit for it. Okay. Because he wasted our time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I like this movie so much. You think I would have been paying attention, right? A five star movie. (laughs) (laughs) We've got so much that we're analyzing throughout the course of these episodes, man. It's bound to happen. So, but hey, definitely check this movie out if you haven't yet. If it's been a while, go back, rewatch it. Both of us give this, you know, among our highest recommendations. You can go to our website, esotericacinema.com, for more exclusive content. In the meantime, this is Jason Peters and Ryan Siebold for Esoterica Cinema reminding you to. Enjoy the movies.